So I want to start today, uh, not in an unusual way, with a question. It's maybe unusual in the sense that uh, a lot of Christians, and I'll just say nominal Christians, which means Christians in name, uh, more particularly Christians in name only, a lot of preachers have taught them that when they become Christians that they can expect to live on easy street. Now, it's not the truth. It's not what Jesus said, but it is what passes for the gospel far too often and has led a lot of people to a shipwrecked place with their faith. They believe that once they raise their hand and walk the aisle and pray this sinner's prayer after me, that they're going to be moved from being down and out to easy street. Their teeth will be wider. Their hair will be fuller. Their car will be newer. Their house will be bigger. Their bank account will be even bigger. And life is just going to be cool and groovy all the way until you get to those gold-paved streets in heaven. So here's something that may be shocking to those of you who have heard or perhaps even subscribe to that what is, frankly, a lie and a heresy. Uh, Jesus promised us that we're going to have trouble. That's the truth. Now, that's not only what he said with his own lips. It's also the testimony from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. But the truth is that if you have Jesus, that you don't have to be troubled by trouble. He doesn't promise you that you won't have trouble. He promises you that you will have trouble, but he promises that it's going to be extremely meaningful, that through your trouble, through your trials, through your tribulations, through your anguish, that pressure and your tears, maybe your sleepless nights, that he's going to let his light shine, that it's going to save people and bring them to glory for all eternity, that it's going to store up for you an eternal weight of glory in heavenly places. So, I just want to reference the scripture here at the outset so that you will know it. You can find it in John 16, verse 33. Let's just go ahead and turn there briefly. John 16, and verse 33. While you're finding it, I just want to say to my brothers and sisters that I haven't seen in a long time, I love you. I miss your face. I can't wait until I see you again, face to face in the same place. I'm going to hug you a really uncomfortably long time. Just buckle up. That's going to happen. And uh, for those of you who are watching, you should know that the Crusade Church here in Russellville, Arkansas, that uh, we love you, that we're praying for you, uh, that uh, we're fasting for you, and uh, Hopefully, those of you who are so moved, you can check out our website, but maybe you want to come join us for the Feast of Tabernacles. I feel that this quarantine will be lifted by that time. Now, I may be overstepping myself a little bit, but we would love to see you face to face. I'll tell you, that's something that's really come home to me, and I noticed that Blake mentioned it in his opening message, that it's, it's that old proverb, isn't it, that absence makes the heart grow fonder? You don't really realize what a, what a comfort and a strength and a joy it is to be physically close to your loved ones until you are separated for a time. Um, 
for those crusaders out there, those members here of the crusade church. We know the Song of Solomon has been very powerful to us, especially in the recent past as the Lord has begun to do a special and a new thing here. I will just mention that as you read through that, you will find that there is a time where the bride finds herself separated, that she's looking and longing for her bridegroom. And for us, we know that we see our bridegroom in one another because Jesus lives in us. But just note that as rapturous and joyous as it is for them to share uh, that intense, fiery love that they have, there are moments, though brief, where, there's, where the bride is distraught, where she's in pain and anguish, where she can't have rest and she's running out and she's looking for her bridegroom. And I feel like this time being separated, though by space only, it feels like that to me. Because even though I'm close to the Lord, in terms of His presence in the Spirit, I'm missing the Lord in each one of you, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Okay, so let's look at uh, Jesus' promise here in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, These things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. Now here's a promise. Now you'll hear a lot of prosperity preachers tell you a lot of promises from the Lord you will never hear them give you this promise, but it is a promise, and the Lord did say it. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. And the root of that word for tribulation, it means pressure. And figuratively, it means all of the things that we feel in terms of pressure. It means trouble. It means tribulation. It means trial. It means persecution. It means dread, it means anxiety, it means suffering, it means pain, all of those things that you think about. And Jesus promised us right here in his word that we're going to have that in this world. Uh, it's not difficult, we should know that there's a reason for that, that it says in the opening of this book that Jesus came, he was literally the light of the world. He was the light, he came to his own but that the people here who have been born into sin and have been deceived by Satan, the God of this age, that they hated the light because they loved their evil. So they hid and they ran from the light. That's the world that we live in, brethren. We should make no mistake about that. So of course we're going to have tribulation in this world. Jesus told his disciples, listen, it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. Look at me. I'm the teacher. Now you see how they've treated me. Do not think that they are going to treat you better. And if you are a student of the Bible, just pay attention. Look what happened when Jesus showed up in Abel, when his spirit was there powerfully in Abel. And all Abel was doing was living a godly life in Christ Jesus and it incited hate from what was, at that time, the world. His brother came because Satan hates Jesus. That's the bottom line. Satan is the God of this age, and he will persecute. He will bring trouble. He will bring trial. He will bring tribulation. And you can just march it right on through from Genesis all the way through to Revelation and understand, of course, there's going to be trouble. There will be trouble. There will be trial. 
there will be tribulation. But I submit to you, the thing that distinguishes Jesus above all others, all who have come and claimed to be some great teacher or some wise prophet, is that Jesus put his money where his mouth was. When Jesus showed up, he faced trouble, constant trouble. It began before he began his public ministry, that's clear. We can see the animus that his brothers levied against him. When they said, oh, why don't you go on down to the feast then? If you want to be some great prophet, you're going to have to be in public. I mean, if you want to be famous, they were mocking him. They were mocking him. That was trouble. That's painful. If you've never been mocked, well, congratulations. It's probably coming for you, but most of us have. We know what that's like. It is painful. It's more painful when it comes from people that we love. Jesus loved his brothers, and that was part of his suffering. Now, the Bible doesn't record it. In fact, we're told that if they were to try to record everything that Jesus did and taught, that there wouldn't be enough pages in all the books in all the world to write it down. But we gain insight, and we understand that there was suffering before he began his public ministry. But it dogged his heels from the very time that he revealed himself, that he showed the world who he was with his first public miracle there at Cana in Galilee, that there were always accusations, that there were always people laying traps for him, asking him questions that were disingenuous. He never really had a moment to rest. That's what he told the young man, that the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was called to suffering. But now think about this, that he was God in all eternity past. That's what the beginning of the book of John says. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And you just skip down a little bit, and it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. He's the one that made everything. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And then he came and humbled himself. He laid down all of that divinity, took it off, laid it down, humbled himself, suffered. And while he was suffering, he was loving those who hated him. Who else is like that? Those of you who are skeptics or agnostics, I want you to look into the historical record of Jesus' life. Because you can see a distinct difference in Jesus from all other who claim to be prophets. The way that he handled his suffering is what revealed his divine nature. A love so foreign to our human experience, so divine, that it would lay itself down for you and for me, for those who were his enemies at that time. And I submit to you that we never look more like Jesus than when we are laying ourselves down, when we are suffering, when we are entrusted by the Lord with trials and tests and trouble and difficulty. And in the midst of that, when we could be as Jesus, now you think about that, as broken and beaten and bloody as he was there, lifted up, shamed and humiliated on that cross, that he would look out with a heart of compassion on his murderers, on those who would mock him in his pain. And he would say, Father, he would plead on our behalf, Father, 
speaking for me, the one who deserved that punishment. Father, forgive David. Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. You see. And it was through that that he brought life and the hope of life to you and to me. And then he called us to follow him. We are called to trouble. We are called to suffering. The last part here of uh, verse 33 is important for us to take note of. He says, although we will have tribulation in this world, we're going to have tribulation. If we follow Jesus, if we listen to him when he says, come follow me, and we follow him, we're going the same way that he was going. It's not a different way. We're going to walk the road of suffering as he walked. We will suffer persecution. And every time that we do, we will have a chance to show Jesus to the world. Not just tell them about Jesus. That's easy. Anybody can say words. Words are easy. It's very difficult to ignore an example. And in the moments that the Lord allows trouble to touch us, well, those are opportunities for Jesus' light to shine through us, to give hope to a dying world, to bring healing, to, bring, to call people to peace, to joy where there's only been despair. I'll give you an example. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but think about that moment when Jesus is lifted up on the cross. You know what he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, I want you to consider the impact of that moment when Jesus is compassionate in the midst of his suffering, when in his trouble, he's faithful, he trusts his heavenly father, He's looking forward to the joy that's set before him, that's you and me. And though he doesn't even look human anymore, he's been so brutally beaten. You can't even tell by his form. That's how broken he was. If you read Psalm 22, you'll see that it says he could see his bones. His flesh would have been ripped right open. Many people died from the scourging. And so in the midst of that, while being mocked by the ones that he was loving, his enemies, for whom he was literally dying, he drew his breath and he said what I just quoted to you. Forgive them. They don't know what they do. And a centurion was standing there, and a Roman centurion is a hardened man. They'd seen many crucifixions. That was just a normal occurrence for them. How much death do you think a Roman centurion had seen? How many campaigns, how many battles to be a soldier in Rome? Many. It's a hard life. Think about this. Even their entertainment was about death. They would go to the Colosseum and literally watch men fight to the death. It was entertaining for them to see uh, people just ripped apart by wild animals and that sort of thing. This is a hardened man. And yet when he saw that kind of love, a love foreign to this world, so potent that even in the midst of that despair could love his enemies, he was undone. It pierced his heart, pierced that hard heart. And he said, surely this was the Son of God. Now see, that's not different for you and for me. It's in those moments when we are held up that way. And most especially if the suffering is unjust. 
That's when we bear the hallmarks of Jesus. That's where Jesus shines brightest. And in those moments for us, that's when Jesus shines brightest through us. And how desperately does this world need that light? Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. You'll be familiar. This is the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to look at some of Jesus' teaching about this. Listen, the, the view that we have to suffering, it says a lot about where our faith is. If our faith is in physical things, if it's in our environment, our circumstances, those temporary things, if it's in our flesh, maybe the state of our bodies, if it's in the state of our bank account, let's say, uh, then when stress and trouble and trial come along, we will collapse. We will uh, be characteristically agitated or overwhelmed. Uh, that's normal. However, if our faith is in spiritual things, and in particular what I mean is, just to be clear, if our faith is in Jesus, the one who inaugurated this way, then we are going to bleed Jesus when we're cut by circumstances. We will praise the Lord like Paul and Silas did in the midst of a prison after being beaten unjustly. Why were they beaten? Because they were preaching the gospel they were offering salvation to people who were desperately lost in their sins for doing that good then, you see. And all that is, it's very much like a proxy war, if you'll think about it. When America went to Vietnam, that was very much a proxy war. You had the, the Soviet forces, both the Russians and uh, the Chinese, who were involved in arming and empowering the troops to the north. And then you had Western forces like the United States that were empowering the, and also equipping the troops in the South. And that's the way it was being played out. Well, that's what's being played out. In this world, Satan is attempting to hurt God. He hates him. And wherever Jesus shows up in people, then he attempts to hurt them. But it will work for us exactly as it worked for Jesus. I mean, the very thing that Satan thought was his victory over Jesus. He thought that was a sure defeat to crucify him after that mockery of a trial, after having him betrayed and turned over to the authorities, after having been beaten almost to death and then publicly shamed and displayed that way. I am certain that Satan was celebrating in that moment. But what Satan meant for evil, the father that Jesus entrusted meant it for good the moment that he shed that blood and broke his body that way, that he loved us even to his dying breath saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's the moment that plunged you and me to victory. That's the moment that provided for our healing. That's the moment that provided for our forgiveness, our perfect cleansing as we're celebrating now in this feast of unleavened bread. See, when he was broken, even as he broke the bread, a symbol of himself, the true bread from heaven, and his disciples took that wholeness in. That's what we are doing now. He gave that to us then. And that is how he was able to rise up out of that grave and conquer death, you see. That's the greatest victory that was ever won. It's, it is the boldest, brightest display 
of his love and power that has ever existed on this earth. And then what you see is that moment is repeated in every faithful Christian's life over and over and over again until we are raised up in glory and we see him face to face. Satan thought that he defeated Jesus by putting him on that cross. What he did was create an army of Jesuses. That's what happened. He provided the way for you and for me to have Jesus come as he prayed in John 17 and live inside of us powerfully and display his glory. Listen, it's fine and it is true. I enjoy all the blessings. I mean, what can I say about suffering? Very little. I live in this rich country of the United States of America. I'm blessed to be in Russellville, Arkansas. It's just replete with beauty. You can't look anywhere without seeing a mountain or a stream or a lake. The people here are nice. Everybody's friendly. People like to wave. It's hard for us to social distance. It's not like some places that I've been to where social distancing is what they do. Even in the prosperous times, they look down, they don't make eye contact. And if they do say, how do you do, they certainly don't stick around to hear the answer. So the truth is, I've known very little of suffering. But I do know what the Lord has taught. I do know what he has exemplified. I do know what all of that great cloud of witnesses mentioned in Hebrews 12. I know what their lives were like. And I do know that in this moment where there's a lot of suffering, that it's a good time for us to look and to see what Jesus taught about it. Because look, here's what happens. If you believe in the fake gospel that false preachers are preaching, that things are going to be good and easy, what do you do when things get hard? Does that wreck your faith? Very many people have found themselves with their faith shipwrecked in those moments. That is why Jesus loved his disciples enough to tell them the truth. In this world, you will have tribulations. You see the way that I was treated here? You can buckle up. Just expect you're going to be treated the same way. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There is his overcoming. That was his overcoming. You see, the moment that we are now playing out as we observe the Passover, at even on the Sabbath, he rose from that grave before his tomb was discovered empty Sunday morning. You see, that was a victory over the grave. And then he showed himself, not to just one or two, but to great crowds over a period of about 40 days and demonstrated that there is hope. That's how he won. That is the way that he won through the adversity, through the trouble, through the trials. And he showed us the way. That's how we are to go. And that's why we don't get distraught by them. That is literally the gateway to joy. That's where the blessings are. That's where the peace is. That's where the overcoming is. You see, what he said is, in the world, you have tribulation. As long as we're in this world, that's where our tribulation is going to be. But in him, we have peace. It's an amazing thing, really. It's very much like he's a storm shelter. And we're wrapped so tightly in him that tornadoes and hurricanes and great storms can pass right through. And here we are with that trouble in the world. 
and yet we're at perfect peace, perfectly protected in him, just as he was perfectly protected through all of his trouble, even though he did give his life, of course. It had great meaning and purpose that, as Blake quoted earlier from Isaiah 53, you see, he saw his children as a result of the things that he suffered. That saved us, and it's not different from us. So here in Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 10. Jesus is pronouncing a blessing. We talked about a promise. The promise was that you're going to have trouble. Here's a blessing. This is how you know you're blessed. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't sound like a blessing. It certainly doesn't jive with prosperity preaching, does it? But Jesus was right. When you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, that literally is, well, as we go on, that's his light shining in this dark world. Isn't that the way it's always been? I mean, think about Moses with his face shining like the sun when he was up on the mountain with the Lord. What happened to him for having the courage to follow the Lord and his instruction to walk right into what represented the pit of hell where Satan is? He walked right into Pharaoh, who was a type of Satan, and he said, you let my people go. I'm setting them free. Now, who does that sound like? Yes, you're right. That's Jesus. It's a type. He's a forerunner. And that's not an easy job for a person to do, to walk into the throne room of ostensibly the most powerful man on this earth and then make a demand. You set those slaves free. But that's what Moses did because that's what Jesus was going to do. Now, Moses came in and the Father blessed him. He did miracle after miracle, judgment after judgment on Egypt. And as you know, Pharaoh begrudgingly gave up much of his riches. The people literally gave treasures to the people of Israel. They marched out. God parted the sea and delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. So now here's that Moses. Moses, their deliverer. Moses, who had suffered this difficulty and taken on this burden for the sake of these people, a heart that he had from the time he was 40, by the way. As you can tell as you read his account, when he saw one of the Israelites being unjustly treated, that he took matters into his own hand and delivered the life of that Israelite at the cost of the life of the Egyptian who was hurting him. But that wasn't the way. That was not the way. That would be the world's way, the arm of flesh. That's what Peter was trying to do with his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said, you put that up. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm going to lay my life down. And it's the same thing. That was not the way. Moses had to go for 40 years. It wasn't until he was 80 years old that he had become humble enough for the Lord to do his work, his way through him. But now look what the people did. They kept accusing Moses. They said, oh, you brought us out here to kill us. And what did Moses do? What was his response? He's receiving hate in return for his love and sacrifice. So what did Moses do? How did he handle that trouble? Well, didn't he look like Jesus? Didn't he just fall on his face and cry out for the Lord to have mercy on those people who were backbiting against him, who were grumbling and complaining at him, the one who had done all of that simply out of compassion for them? Moses didn't go into Egypt to deliver himself. Moses was already out. See, 
And we are the ones who needed deliverance. And that's always the way. You see, that looks like Jesus. That was a moment in Moses' life where he got to display that. That's a blessing when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That's why Moses was persecuted in that moment. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, how do you know? Well, because God said so, yes. But also because the king of heaven is shining through you in that moment. Are you in that kingdom? You are if the king is ruling and reigning in you. And if he is, he's coming out of you. That is your calling card. That is a litmus test. There are others I can think of, but none more poignant. If you look like Jesus when you're in trouble, especially trouble that you didn't bring on yourself, Jesus is living in you. Verse 11, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, that's the testimony of the whole of Scripture. The Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. John who brought us revelation. John the aged, the one whom Jesus loved so dearly. Of course, he loved all of his disciples, but he was especially close to John. And all the other disciples knew it. That John, because he was being faithful to Jesus because he was proclaiming the gospel and working powerfully. Well, he was put into prison as an old man on the Isle of Patmos. Look, that was a mining island. That was a labor camp. He's an old man. Can you imagine being an aged person out in the hot, blinding sun? And if you've never done this kind of work, just take my word for it. If you're swinging a, a sledgehammer or a pick in the hot sun, that's hard work. I wouldn't necessarily call myself an old man, but I am 50. And I will tell you that when I do that kind of work, I find it difficult. Now, that was what was going on. That was persecution for John. And yet, what was happening through John? Jesus was delivering such a powerful revelation and a letter to him there on the Isle of Patmos. It's because of that that we understand things about the end times and what we can expect to happen. Now, he was blessed because he shared in that persecution. And even though the Lord delivered him, Satan stirred up those guards and they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him in a vat of oil. And yet the Lord wouldn't allow that to touch him because he had work for him to do. But you imagine how powerful that influence would have been of John, how faithful he was until the end. You see, he looked a lot like Jesus in the midst of that persecution. There's a blessing. There's a blessing that he gets to share with Jesus in that sort of suffering. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. You see, there is a trade-off. There's a cost. That's the reason that I find it so repugnant that many people will preach a gospel that doesn't entail suffering and difficulty and hardship, that doesn't talk about uh, sleepless nights or being mocked and persecuted by the world because if you have your treasures here in this earth, 
Well, you're just robbing your heavenly bank account. And here's the biggest problem with that. You're not going to get to enjoy your treasures here in this earth, not for very long. I read some statistics recently, and this might interest you. One out of one people dies. So far, it's 100%. It's certain it's going to happen. And you don't get to take any of your stuff with you. So would you really trade eternity with glory and blessings for a hundred years of trinkets, just little shiny things? Do you think that's a good trade? There's a man that I found, or still find, inspirational, Elizabeth Elliot's husband. I can't remember his first name. His last name is Elliot. I don't think that's right, but it is a J. I think Elizabeth's going to look it up. Yeah, it's, it's, it could be John, but I don't think so. At any rate, one of his quotes, he wrote this in his journal as he was a missionary to the uh, Indians in Central America. He said, that man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in exchange for that which he cannot lose. That's exactly right. Jim, that's right. Jim Elliott, very good. So you store up your treasures in heaven is the cost. That's what I'm bringing up. There's a cost. It costs something. You give up something here and you gain something there. Think of all of the offerings that Jesus made. Think of it. Sleepless nights. Suffering persecution that he never deserved. Always being accused. Always having traps laid for him. The pressure of the weight of the world, our salvation, the, the whole fate of mankind, the family of God that he began to build as we see revealed in Genesis 1.26. All of that on his shoulders. He hurt every day. Now with each one of those, there was an eternal exchange being made. Treasure was being laid up in heaven. If you ever want to look at that, well, just look at a Christian. That's part of the treasure. That's an eternal treasure. That is a glorious bride for Jesus for all eternity. And look at the great cloud of witnesses. What's more beautiful than that? Those lives speak to us even today. You think Job's suffering laid up for him treasures? I'll tell you, I am one of those. I am a part of the treasure that Job bought through his unjust suffering that he didn't deserve. The Lord said he was a righteous man. But he told Satan, you go ahead, have at him. And because we have that recorded, his experience recorded, I've had hope in my darkest places. Job and his utter commitment, his absolute, unwavering, unfaltering, unflagging, unfailing faith in the midst of his trouble and torment, where he said, I don't care if you kill me, I'm going to trust you. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Because of that, I'm still here. Now, why would you think, if that is so, that your suffering might not have the same effect on your brothers and sisters, both today and over time until the Lord returns, perhaps even afterwards into the millennium, perhaps even into eternity? Perhaps there's a song and you're part of that song. Maybe you're a chorus in that song. Hallelujah. So it is worth rejoicing 
And that is the way that the prophets were always treated. So Jesus promised that it would be like that. But skip on down to verse 38. This is very radical teaching. It's so, so different from the Pharisees, uh, which were, I suppose you could say, the prosperity preachers of that day. They certainly believed in having lots of money and a, a lot of accolades from uh, the public and being finely dressed and making a show of everything. But of course, Jesus was right. He just called them whitewashed tombs. Oh yeah, it looks great. Looks great. Good job on the outside. Here's the problem. You have a thin veneer of that sort of niceness and beauty, but inside you're just dead and rotting. See, let's look at verse 38. Here's Jesus. You heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist. And in this, word, this sense, resist means you don't fight back. Don't render a like response. Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now see, when you do that, you look like Jesus. This is the world. This is the flesh. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In fact, even that command was there to keep us from doing what we would naturally do because you know what the flesh will do, right? If they take my eye, I will kill them. You see, we want to do even a disproportionate response. That's the flesh. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was a bit of an accommodation just to try to hold back the level of evil that is natural to us because of the fall. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not like that at all. Not if you want to look like me. If you want to be my disciples, if you want me to live through you, if you want to look like your Father in heaven, here's what you do. Turn the other cheek and don't render evil for evil. Now, the reason this is so poignant, look at the time of year we're in. This is the Passover season. We're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, we just got through looking at what Jesus did. He didn't just teach this. He lived it for us, didn't he? Didn't he? Did they not slap him? And did he not turn the other cheek? Now, What's so powerful about that is not just that he showed us the way in that, but also that that's our hand slapping him. Didn't we all slap him with our lives? Didn't we? Weren't we his enemies? Wasn't it our sin that nailed him to the cross, that scourged and broke him? Right. And yet he loved us. And because he showed us love, even though we hated him, that pierced our hearts like the centurion. Those of us who are saved, you see, that sort of love is greater than any form of evil, any scheme of Satan. It covers a multitude of sins. It brings a powerful light into a dark life. It transforms hearts. It transformed my heart. I'm a very different man standing here than I was when Jesus found me. Now, he's teaching you that as his disciple, in those moments, where you, because he is in you, are being slapped, you turn the other cheek. And in so doing, you will be living his heart out. It's a very powerful thing. Also, that's a moment when you look very much like Jesus. 
You know, anybody can be compassionate when things are easy and good. But it's very difficult to deny the love of a person who's compassionate in the midst of suffering and hardship and pain, especially if you brought that pain on them, if you brought that hardship on them, and then they're kind to you, they're patient with you, they're loving towards you. That looks like Jesus. That's what he's teaching, and that's what he did. Verse 39, we saw, he said, don't resist an evil person. If they slap you on one cheek, you turn the other one. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And there, that's very radical. You know, what do you want to do with a thief? Well, you know, you probably want to beat him up or lock him up. And Jesus is saying that someone who takes advantage of you that way, love them. And again, that's us. That's the position we were in. We stole all of these blessings from God. And like a thief, we didn't return any gratitude toward him when we were just in the world, in the flesh. And because we saw that he would love us, even selfish as we were with our mercenary little hearts that are so greedy, so fixed on self. And that not only would he give his coat, he would give his shirt too. See, he was always spending himself to spare us. Look at the power of that impact. So in a moment when someone's taking advantage of you, that's a moment that you get to live Jesus out. And it's very difficult to deny that light. Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That we, we have a common expression now as a result of that teaching from Jesus, you know, go the extra mile. That's powerful. I'll tell you, I won't let it go long. I was a bit, uh, I thought or was concerned that maybe Blake would have shared this testimony, but I didn't see him do it. So Blake and I were out working this week out in the fields outside. And uh, we got in a remote part of uh, outside of town and ended up missing a turn. And then we ended up with the truck, one wheel down in a ditch and one back wheel sticking up and a trailer full of thousands of pounds worth of lawn equipment in the back. And this is a busy road with a bend, so we're in trouble at this moment. Now, what happened in that moment is that almost instantly, before we had a moment to despair, a man stopped in the road and start, put his flashers on to prevent us from getting hit. And then, of all people, a FedEx driver who, if you know how the, it is for them, like their whole compensation and job security is based on being on time and efficiency. He stopped and he kept his social distance from us, but he said, hey man, I got this big diesel on my truck. Why don't you just hook up to us and I'll pull you right out of there? So he did. The reason that that's an example of this kind of love, and I told them after I unloosed or undid the strap that I had put on his truck and our truck. I said, I don't know what you believe, but I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe the Lord sent you here today, and I also believe that he's going to bless you richly for what you've done. Thank you so much. You see. Now, what that is is an example of going the extra mile. That's an example of it. There are many. But when you do that, Jesus just shines so brightly through you. People recognize it. They, they, they might miss it otherwise, but in that moment, they understand that they've had a divine visitation. I certainly did. So 
He who demands that you go with him one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks of you, and don't turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So this just is having a giving attitude, just what Jesus did. Jesus gave all kinds of things. He was always giving things, you know, healing and wisdom and encouragement and compassion. He also, look what he gave, the expensive things. Didn't he give sleepless nights and tears? Even for us, we didn't even know that we needed to ask for it. But he gave himself for us. You never look more like Jesus than when you're giving in your attitude and your spirit. See, if your faith is in physical, fleshly things, it's hard to give unless you just happen to have an abundance, right? Because you're afraid that you'll be without. That's natural. If your faith and confidence is in the Lord, the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the God who made the whole universe and holds it together by his power, if you know that a bird never falls from its nest that he's not aware of and that he knows every hair on your head and that if he needs to, he will rain manna from heaven or bring you food by the brook Kidron that he'll bring by birds, he can do that. Or send like he did with Jesus an angel to minister to you or as he did with Elijah as well in the cave. If you know that your needs are provided for and you're never in scarcity, literally never in scarcity, if you have the abundance of all of what the God of everything has, then it's easy, isn't it, to be giving. You can be generous with your heart. You can be generous with your vulnerability. You can be generous with your time, with everything, because the Lord has it well in hand. You see, that's why these moments... They do show who Jesus is living through. Because when we're acting like Jesus, you see, the world will see Jesus. And look, you've got to do something with that. It's easy to ignore preaching, good writing, poetry, beautiful music. And I love all of those things. And people who know me know that I love them. But I'm telling you, there is nothing like under difficulty, under stress, under persecution when your stores are low, when you are being pressed and you let Jesus shine through, when there is grace, when there is faith, when there is patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and meekness there, that is a powerful impact on this world. It's difficult to ignore that, just as it was difficult for that Roman centurion to ignore. Or consider this. In Acts chapter 7, we have it recorded where uh, Stephen witnessed to uh, his fellow Israelites. And he was basically testifying. He was in the middle of just doing something good. He was administering a, a food program for those who were in need. So he was showing the love of Jesus there in what he was doing. You might think of that as a lowly position, but he has the honor of being the first martyr. He has the honor of doing exactly what we're looking at today. In the midst of his persecution, he looked so much like Jesus. So much, in fact, that it says his face was shining like an angel. That Jesus was giving him a standing ovation. That he stood as Stephen was lovingly giving his last breath. And with it, what did Stephen do? Did he curse those who were cursing him? Pronounce a judgment that they so justly deserve? Or did he sound a lot like Jesus? 
Did he say, Father, forgive them? They don't understand what they're doing. You see? And that light shines bright. Well, here's what happened. That just as Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't understand what they're doing, save that centurion, and that's recorded for you and me today. That moment with Stephen pierced a man named Saul of Tarsus's heart, a man who was likewise hardened and who had an awful lot of zeal, but not for the Lord, not according to knowledge. He was persecuting Jesus. Later, when Jesus called him on the road to Damascus, he said, it's difficult, isn't it, to keep kicking against the pricks? What had pierced his heart? What pricked his heart? A young man named Stephen, where Saul of Tarsus held that coat. And listen, Saul of Tarsus, who talked a lot about righteousness as he understood it through uh, the law, through struggling and striving to know more than the next guy and to wear just the right thing in just the right place at just the right time whose inward heart was just full of murderous greed, covetousness. That's what Paul himself would say about himself. He was a violent man. He was full of violent wrongdoing at that time. But his heart was pierced because Jesus shone through Stephen, because Stephen, in that trouble, was full of Jesus. And look what happened through Paul, all of his sufferings, all of them. I mentioned one time, with him and Silas when they were locked in a prison. And Jesus shone through them as they were singing praises, unjustly suffering, unjustly. They were getting the opposite of what they deserve. They were being beaten for doing nothing but being loving and kind. And Jesus was resting on them. That spirit of glory was shining through them. And that prison was saved. And that prison guard, another man who would have been hardened, was saved. And a church was established there. Verse 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, when you act like that, there is a family resemblance See, just as when you act in selfishness and greed and self-preservation and, you know, when you rise and fall based on environmental factors and that sort of thing, when you behave that way, you resemble Adam, who is like his father, the devil, that he submitted and surrendered to in the garden. That's how that is. But when you behave like Jesus, when you can love those who are hurting you, think of a man after God's own heart. Think of King David as he wrote in his Psalms that those people who were persecuting them, him, when they were sick, that he would fast and he would pray for them, that he would plead their case. See, that's how the Lord is. And when the Lord calls us to do that, he's calling us to invest with him in our eternal future. You know, that's how you can gain a part ownership in a stock or a company. You can invest. You invest, you have a part, you have a share. That's how that works. Well, the Word says that we have a share in Jesus' suffering because it's His suffering that is bringing about this glory that will be throughout all eternity. It doesn't exist without the suffering. Now, Jesus, as our head, inaugurated the way. And then he gives each of us a share, a part. 
And if you have a lot of it, praise the Lord. Because that means that He's entrusted a lot to you. Because it means that you get to invest a lot. And to the degree that we don't squander our opportunities to invest, we're laying up treasures in heaven. That's what the Bible says. Those are... I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Don't you want to be close to the Lord? Don't you want to share intimacy with Him? Is there anything better than that? If you have tasted it, you know. That's as good as it gets. Now, how do we obtain that contact with Him? Well, first, because He suffered. Because He endured trouble and trial and tribulation. You see, it was Him coming to this earth, plunging Himself into suffering, rather than staying aloof, which He could have done. But He wanted to save us, so He came down. He got into our suffering. That's how we have access to Him. That's how we see Him. And that's how we can reach out and touch Him. And likewise, His access to us is through suffering, through laying ourselves down. In each one of those moments, that's a point of contact. That's a moment that we share. That's something that we build together. We forge a future through all eternity in the work we do together with the Lord even right now. So as much as our flesh hates it, and look, do not think that I'm saying that my flesh is all excited. I've told you this before, but I'll repeat this also. When I was a baby Christian, way back in the very early 1990s, I was studying my Bible. I came across the book of James, and I, I got very upset when I read, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, and I threw my Bible. I did not lightly toss it aside. I hurled it with Great enthusiasm, because I thought it was unfair for God to demand that not only do I endure hard things, but that I uh, be happy about it. I thought that was unreasonable, but it's because I didn't understand, see. I didn't understand that literally that was the gateway to the joy that he was offering. You know, when he says to praise him when there's trouble when, and trust him in your trials, to be loving when you are hated, to be patient and gentle, to be kind, to be giving to those who would take advantage of you. When he says these things, he's saying, come a little bit closer to me. Just come a little closer to me. I will show you more of me. We will share more. And see, that's such a good trade. It's such a good trade. If you ever get to the other side of that, if you, if you understand, I, I can tell you my greatest moments with the Lord have been those moments where He bent and washed my feet. Now that's suffering. He humbled Himself in that moment to love on me. When He allowed Himself to be so badly brutalized, mistreated and lied about, mocked and publicly humiliated, that's so much pain. That's such a treasure to me. And I believe that the opposite is true, that my moments where because of his name, because he lives in me, that he's decided to hold me up like a lamp and shine through me. And those moments where there's been difficulty and pain and trial and hardship, those moments are the moments I've been closest to him, where he's been the most intimate with me. I wouldn't trade him for anything. I'm so thankful for them because, listen, it is an honor to be able to speak on the Lord's behalf, to be 
put in a position where I could put forward his word, where I can brag on Jesus. I love doing that. But it's worth a thousand sermons, isn't it? To see someone in the position that Jesus was in, where you're suffering unjustly, and you're being like Jesus, and you love in return. I'm thankful those are, those are rare and precious treasures for me. So he says, love your enemies, because when you do that, you are sons of your Father in heaven. There's a family resemblance, and here's how you know. Doesn't he give sunshine? Doesn't he cause the sun to shine on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? Look, if you love those who love you, what reward is there in that? Don't the tax collectors do the same? Now look, tax collectors were traitors. That's why they were so hated. The Israelites were occupied by a foreign power, by Rome, and they demanded exorbitant taxes. And some very few of the Israelites decided that they would side with the Romans and collect these burdensome taxes from their countrymen. Now, they lived great lives. They were doing just fine. But how they made their money was anything they collected above what they had to turn into the Romans, they got to keep. So where there's already this very burdensome tax rate, they raise it even more, betraying their people, getting rich themselves, and then handing that to a foreign occupying power. That's why people hated tax collectors. That's very selfish, you see? That's very greedy. And so Jesus is saying, look, even people like that love people who love them, of course. Everybody's like that. But if you love those who hate you, if you pray for those who persecute you, and you do good to those who despitefully use you, when you do that, boy, that stands out. You know, I'm mindful of the time when Peter was in the boat and Jesus came walking on the water. Because this is a metaphor for Christian living. And Peter said, Lord, if that's you, you call me to come out and walk to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. And so Peter was bold enough not only to ask, but to put a foot over the side of that gunnel, step down on the water, focus on Jesus, and walk out there, which is amazing. That is what the Christian life is. It is not difficult, just like walking on water is not difficult. It's impossible. You can't do it in the flesh. Can you walk on water in the flesh? No. No, you can't. But in the spirit, you can. And it's just like that. It is just as difficult to love your enemies as it is to walk on water. It requires supernatural power. But if our eyes are fixed on Jesus by his power that dwells in us mightily, we can do that. He can do that. That's why he said earlier as we read, you know, take courage. I've overcome the world. I've shown you. We're going to win. And that's exactly the moment of our triumph in our adversity like that. And the world cannot ignore it. But that's why adversity, hardship, especially unjust suffering, it really reveals Christians, doesn't it? It'll show you the difference between somebody who's like wearing a Christian costume and saying their Christian lines, you know, and somebody who's a Christian way down deep in their heart. Because a play actor doesn't have the power to walk on water or to love their enemies. But Jesus has that power. 
He had that power when he was here on this earth, and he has that power now that he's here living in our hearts. So he commands us in that, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which again, see, that sounds like an impossible command, but it's not. With God, all things are possible. We can be 100% perfect in Him because He was 100% perfect. And by faith, that is our record. That's us. That's what He came to give us. That was the gift, His perfect life. That's our life. That's why no one can bring an accusation against a Christian because there's nothing to accuse Jesus of. He's not guilty. Flawless, perfect, that's us, by faith. By faith. Just as He became our sin, we, by faith, become His righteousness. Hallelujah. Turn with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. I was uh, watching a preacher on YouTube and I thought it very interesting. I don't know that this is true. You may want to research it, but uh, it sounds like a thing that could be true. They say that those people who uh, study history, especially Christian history, have looked at the old Bibles that they used to keep in churches, you know, say back in the 1200s, 1300s, etc., on up, and that they found that in times of the greatest distress and hardship, that the book of First Peter was open the most. And the way they determined that was that it was the amount of residue of candle wax that was left on the page, that there was more candle wax on that page corresponding to Bibles that were there in moments of great pain and distress, like, say, the, the great plague that struck Europe. So I find that interesting because I will tell you that this book from Peter, like the example of Job, is very powerfully comforting to me in moments of trial and trouble. So here in 1 Peter chapter 2, let's look at uh, verse 18 to begin. Just a moment. It says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And this is how it fits, because that's being unjustly treated, right? Those who are unreasonable. So, he says, verse 19, This finds favor. For if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. See, that finds favor with the Lord. It reminds me of Isaiah 53, which Blake quoted earlier. You see, it pleased the Lord, the Father, to crush Jesus. Why? Because His crushing yielded us. It saved the family. A, a, an innumerable multitude will be saved because He laid Himself down. That's what Jesus knew about being crushed. That's what the Father knew about allowing His Son to be crushed that way. That's how you can look at that with joy, like James commands you and me to do, to count it all joy. So that's one important thing to know. It pleases him. Like we saw Jesus standing because Stephen was laying himself down. He was being unjustly treated in that moment. It finds favor. 
Verse 20, for what credit is it that if when you sin, you're harshly treated and you endure it with patience? Right, that's not an opportunity to shine Jesus out. If you've sinned and you suffer for it, well, fine. You know, you've got to take your lumps. That's part of it. However, you don't, that really doesn't preach to people, does it? You know, everybody has to do that. But, he says, if when you do what's right and you suffer for it, like we mentioned Paul and Silas, you know, the, you could think of Abel. Think of Joseph and what happened with his brothers. What was his crime? Well, I mean, he coveted the Lord's blessing. The Lord blessed him. He had a purpose for him. So his brothers wanted to murder him, but they settled just for making him a slave and plunging him into dark, painful, miserable, seemingly interminable suffering. I mean, for a decade or better. He was just in hell. That was Joseph's life. I'm sure that he cried many tears, had many sleepless nights. But what did he say later? He said, well, yeah, my brothers, they, you did. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And then he was merciful and he was kind to his brothers, just like Jesus is. You see, that'll preach. That will save Verse 21, this is a radical thing, but this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, for you've been called for this purpose. Now, what purpose? For unjust suffering. That's the purpose. Jesus was called to it. He didn't deserve the suffering. We did. I did. That's why he came and suffered, because I did deserve it. And then he gave me what I didn't deserve, which was his love and his mercy. And the grace that I stand in today. And it's my great honor and privilege to return the favor. How, how could I? How could I shrink back from that chance? After I've been given so much, how could I do any less? Because I want him to be pleased, see? That finds favor. It doesn't just mean that I gain his favor. I'm in his favor now. It pleases him. It brings him pleasure and joy. It adds to the family. It adds to the family treasury. It adds to the revelry that we will experience for all eternity. Hallelujah. We were called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in His steps. He suffered for us. We suffer because He's in us for the sake of those who are around us and for those who will come after us with the same purpose, only we never are alone in it. But if we bear up like that, the, the fruits really are beyond our measuring. It is impossible. And I would, I would counsel you, if you are a Christian, spend a little time contemplating that treasure that awaits you. Don't let a day slip by where you don't spend a little time counting your money, so to speak. I know you're going to laugh at me, but I'm going to do it anyway. When I was a kid, or maybe not so much of a kid, maybe I was 18, I used to love watching the cartoons with a kid that I would babysit after he got home from school. And we would watch a guy named Scrooge McDuck. Some of you may be familiar. And what was funny is he was supposed to be a Scottish stereotype, and Scots are stereotyped as being very frugal, pinching a penny until it screams. And Scrooge McDuck was this very, very wealthy Scottish, 
Scotch duck. And he had Im Im immense treasuries of gold that he would just bathe and wallow in. He loved just letting the, his gold coins sift through his fingers. Okay, I know that's a silly image, but it's meaningful to me because as a Christian, I have treasures too. I have them stored in heaven. My treasures are those, that great crowd of witnesses, those pure and faithful hearts to whom my own heart is knit. I feel a kindred bond with those who have gone before me and a debt of gratitude I could never repay because it is because of the letters of Paul. It is because of the example of Job. It is because of the faithfulness of Joseph that I am still here and that I have a future and a hope. See, that's part of my riches and the world can't touch it and a change in the economy cannot erode it even if all of the elements of this earth pass with blazing heat as we know that they're going to, if the curtains of the heavens are rolled back as a scroll, that treasure remains for me. Also the treasure of the truest and most faithful heart that has ever been, the greatest love that can be contemplated, that happens to be real. Jesus, the one who loved me even when I ignored and hated him, the one who paid so dearly in order to rescue and heal me, to draw me close to him, the one who sings into my heart and gives me strength and joy, even in the darkest of times, that one that I know now in part, you know, that makes my heart flutter with just the sound of his robes, just the smell of his cologne, just the heat of his presence, just him being near, makes me a quiver, who brings me peace and comfort and strength. You see, I am going to see him face to face with nothing in the way. And I will be with him for all eternity. That's part of my treasures. The reason I bring that up is, see, there's something common about those people who demonstrated what Jesus is teaching us to do. It says that Jesus endured what he endured because of the joy that was set before him. He saw us and he was glad. I'm happy to do it. Yes, I will lay myself down. Yes, I will take that insult. Yes, I will be slapped. Yes, I will let you plait that crown of thorns into my head. Yes, I will go without sleep tonight. Sure, I'll let my closest friends betray me. Yeah, I'll be mocked here and jeered, laid bare before all mankind. Yes, I will. Well, because David is waiting for me on the other side. That's what he said. And he wasn't going to let any of that get in the way of being with me, see. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. That's my treasure on the other side. It said that Moses saw, he, he saw ahead what the Lord had promised him. And that's how he endured. And I, don't, I can't even begin to enumerate. The more I think about what Moses went through, the more I think he had such, such a difficult trial to endure bearing hatred from those that he was just trying to bless and deliver. And every day, they didn't do anything but give him grief and friction. They were plotting coups and telling lies about him. And yet, he, what was he doing? He was interceding on their behalf. You see, it'll keep you going. You have to have something in front of you. It can't just be that you're running from the whip. That's what a slave does. A slave is trying to avoid the whip. We're not slaves, brethren. We're the bride. 
It's for what's in front of us that we run. It's for the joy set before us. It's for those open arms of Jesus. That's what we're running to. And that's an example for us to follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. That just means that it was unjust what he suffered. Verse 23, and while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. Look, that's difficult. And I understand. If any of you are out there, I can't hear you, but I suspect you think that that's, uh, that's too high of a bar. And you're right, it's just exactly like walking on water. In the flesh, we can't do it. All of us have reviled when we've been reviled. I, that was sort of my thing, to be honest. When I was young, that's how I was. Because I was always glib a little bit. I had a, a quick mouth, let's say. So I enjoyed reviling when I was reviled. And it's been the Lord's constant work on me to make me any different from that. So we grow in it. Of course we do. We cannot do it, not by might, not by our power, but we can by the Holy Spirit. We can, if Jesus is living in us, we can bless those who curse us. We can give a blessing to people who are cursing us. We can love people who are hating us and persecuting us. Yes, we can. Jesus is not committing the error and folly of commanding a thing that we are incapable of doing. Of course we can't do it by ourselves. But with God, all things are possible. He did it and he demonstrated it, see? That's not different. He's not different today than he was then. And so if he's in us, we can do it. He did not revile in return. While suffering, he didn't utter any threats. But he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. And that's key. That's why I say it will reveal where your faith is when you're in trouble and trial and tribulation and testing, difficulty, pain, pressure, anxiety, when you're sleepless or you don't have enough food in the cupboard or you don't know how you're going to cover the next bill, when your time is short but your, the demands on you and your attention and your energy are high. Those are the times that will show, is Jesus living in you? And this, it's a good thing to examine yourself and to see, is Jesus coming out? Because I'll tell you that, you know, uh, there are a lot of things you can do that are nice things, but not everything is equally important. Like Bible study is absolutely necessary for a Christian. So is prayer, meditation, and so is uh, doing a work of service, being in your local body, not forsaking the assembly, all of these things. But it is possible to end up like Saul of Tarsus to learn so many facts, but to find yourself fighting against the Lord, you see. You have to let him change you. You have to grant him that access. You have to, in the moments, like Mary, when she, was in, when she encountered the angel, and it told her, well, we are going to let you give birth to the Son of God, but you're going to be pierced by many sorrows. You're going to suffer. You're going to have to worry about whether or not you're going to lose Joseph, your husband, the one that you're betrothed to. You're going to have to suffer and you're going to have to watch your son die. And she just said, let it be to your servant however you will. It's just like Jesus said in the garden, not my will, 
your will be done. That's what we do in those moments. Because that is the crucial difference, isn't it? Someone who's living in the flesh according to the flesh says, not your will, mine be done. They say, to live is gain and to die is Christ. I'm going to get everything I can get right now, and then when I'm dead, okay, then I'm fine with heaven then. But for right now, I want to have my best life right now. But if Jesus is living in you, then you say like he did, not my will, yours be done. What will glorify you, Lord? What will bring glory and fame to your name? What will advance your cause? What will please your heart? Do you need to plunge me into a foul prison for a decade? Do as you will. My body is not my own. I'm bought with a price. Do what pleases you, because that's what I want, and it doesn't matter how much it costs me. It's so little compared to what you have paid for me. Now see, that's Christ in you. That's when you can say, like Paul, for me to live is Christ. It's Christ right now. When I wake up, it's Christ. When I speak, it's Jesus and Him crucified, you see. It's my goal and my ambition. It's my drive. And the only way to do that is to be close to Him. That just means that you have to really seek His heart with your heart. And then, lather, rinse, and repeat. Keep doing that. Don't harden your heart against things that make you suffer, see. Jesus was always putting His gloves down, wasn't He? You know, I'm thinking of the time that he was tested in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, in his weakest condition, you know. And he basically said, all right, Satan, you've been picking on my people. Why don't you pick on me? And he put him down. He bound him. That's when he bound the strong man before he started to plunder his house, which is what he did with every soul that he saved, what he's still doing with every soul that he saves, my soul, your soul and all of those souls that he gains and garners through you and your example. He didn't protect himself. And we have to be likewise open. We have to be open to that. Otherwise, the Lord can't do what he wants to do. And we want him to have his way. Amen? Not like I'm going to get an amen. I hope some of you said amen out there. I will tell you this, Big Daddy, if you're watching now or later, that when I watch these services, I'm saying amen just from, just from my computer monitor. Oh, that's funny. So he didn't utter any threats. He just trusted himself to the one who judges rightly. We put our trust in him in those moments. Lord, you take care of what concerns me. This moment doesn't make any sense to me. I have no idea how I'm going to make it through. But I'm just going to trust myself to you. I'll be faithful. I'll just obey you to death the way that you obeyed your father to death. Do with it whatever you want. This life belongs to you anyway. Verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. We have the same opportunity. As he was in this world, he's instructed us to be. Is your life healing to those who witness you? It should be. Should be. I mean, if Jesus lives in us, you know, those who know me know that my favorite Bible verse is Galatians 2.20, which is, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. I mean, and yet Christ lives within me. That's the mystery. 
You know, you have to get up and you have to die every day for him to be alive in you. If you choose to spare yourself, well, you're putting him back on the cross. If you choose to allow him to live his life through you, then your flesh is going to stay on the cross. So the main point in all of this that is being said is that we've been called to agony. We've been called to anguish. We've been called to suffering. Peter tells us to arm ourselves with that purpose. Jesus says you're blessed when you're persecuted. And every moment like that, now just think with me, that's an opportunity for Jesus' light to shine into this dark world. Now what good is it if the Lord makes you a lamp and you decide to cover yourself with a bushel basket, see? That's what happens when you shrink back from laying yourself down under especially unjust suffering, unjust trials. But if we will entrust ourselves to Him and lay ourselves down, let Him shine through us, those are the very moments that will give us our greatest gifts in all eternity, that He will be able to shine the brightest through, that He will save souls through. The rest of your life, whenever you're not having that opportunity, really is like an intermission. That The whole point are those moments along the road of your life that He has ordained when you have a moment to be like Him, to demonstrate that, to turn the other cheek, to bless someone who curses you, to bear up under suffering. See, we spend this whole time of our lives, by the way, symbolized by this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Seven days, we're eating Jesus. We're spending our lives. Seven is completion. It's our whole lives from the moment that we're saved and born again until the moment that we breathe our last breath and then we await Jesus' return to be resurrected in glory and spend eternity with Him. Along that road, there are moments that He has appointed for us. We don't know where they are. He does. Those moments, really, they're our greatest opportunities. That's where, like a kernel of seed, we get to lay down and die so that life can come from it. So I pray that this has been an encouragement to you. It is a reality check, but also, to me, it is just a rehearsal of the glories that will necessarily follow. If you can see how Jesus was in his suffering and what followed. If you can look at the example of Abel, of Noah, of all of those righteous ones who are mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, look at the outcome, see. Then you can understand the way that the Lord will use any of your suffering. And even when it's painful, you can say, well, Lord, just do your will. I will not resist you. 